Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Pierre Valencia. In 2002, in the wake of the financial crisis and massive popular uprising that rocked Argentina, the artists of the group Etc. brought a proposal to a popular assembly that met weekly in a park in Buenos Aires. Now that we have nothing, we should give back to the politicians the only thing we have left, our shit. With the help of the assemblies and independent news media, they organize a collective performance they realized this proposal in the most literal way, directly in front of the National Congress. Another artist collective, Corpo de Arte Callejero, was mimicking official signage in a guerrilla intervention that directed people to the homes of former military and police officers and priests in a public exposure protest. These are just two examples in Another Aesthetics is Possible, a new book by Jennifer Ponce de Leon, which examines the roles that art can play in the collective labor of creating and defending another social reality. The book shows how experimental practices in the visual, literary and performing arts have been influenced by, and sometimes synonymous with, leftist movements and popular uprisings that have repudiated neoliberal capitalism and its violence. Well, I'm very happy to say that Jennifer Ponce de Leon joins me now to talk about her research. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. Thank you very much. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for joining me. Jennifer, your book is an incredibly vivid account of a set of artistic practices staged in the Latin American world. Uh, your case studies include artists working in Argentina and in Mexico and also in California. But beyond that, it struck me that what you are attempting is actually much richer and much deeper um, social, cultural and geopolitical situation of those artistic practices. But before we get into any of these details, I wonder if I could ask you to tell our listeners about how you came to be interested in these research areas. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. So, you know, I think this book really grew out of research questions that I've been interested in for I'd say 20 years, and that most broadly, these are questions about the role that cultural productions, the arts, artists, and professional intellectuals have in class struggles, but more specifically, the role that we have or can have in struggles of the popular classes towards, you know, within egalitarian or emancipatory projects. So, and then I think related to this are questions about how to historicize politicized art practices or, you know, artistic practice whose social lives are bound up with political struggles. You know, the the research for this book really does, was about 20 years in the making. Um, I initially got into these, I was interested in this question of the relationship between politics and art through my research on the Chicano art movement. Um, And the Chicano movement was a a social movement that emerged in the U.S. Southwest in the 1670s among working class Mexican-Americans and had a really vibrant um, cultural uh, expressive component to it in literature and theater and arts. And that was sort of how I first became really interested in um, in thinking about these questions of artists' roles in social struggles. And um, I did research on the arts of that movement uh, for many years. And then, um, and I should also say that I also learned a lot about the history of that movement through my interest in the arts of the movement and through interviewing artists who were involved in it. And so I think that also, um, you know, fueled my interest in the way that the that culture has this important uh, role within social movements and that um and it also gave me this um interest in the ways that social movements you know disseminate counter hegemonic ideologies and novel perceptual configurations uh, in a lot of different social sites so that was sort of how these research questions 
were, I started formulating them. And then in about the mid 2000s, I decided I wanted to extend my research um, into South America and, and into Latin America more generally and to con- think about how I might con- um, historicize, politicized art of Latinos or Chicanos within the U.S. Um, together with, you know, as part of more hemispheric history and a more international history. And um, initially, I was going to do that work, kind of thinking more about the time frame of the Chicano movement, as that was my framework um, from the 60s and 70s. But when I went to do research in um, Chile and Argentina, more specifically in Santiago and Buenos Aires, I just became really engrossed in the um, artistic and political communities there. And that shifted the kind of shifted my research to much more contemporary framework, even though I had been interviewing contemporary, um, I mean, artists who were, you know, uh, active in the 2000s. um, But I decided I really wanted that to be the focus of my research. So more also of a kind of generation of artists who grew up in the and started their practice in the throes of the you know neoliberal 90s and also in with in connection to movements that really flourish in the 90s and 2000s so um i ended up doing uh, a lot of research in buenos aires and living there for many years and following these the artists and um uh there and then kind of it was from that that i ended up um, developing a m- much more deeper interest in Zapatismo. And I think it was, um, I think noteworthy that there was the influence of Zapatismo was so important for the movements in Buenos Aires that I was um, studying. And so part of that also, I think, speaks to my desire to do a uh, a book that would connect these different sites that could talk about how, you know, movements in Southern Mexico are influencing people in LA and in New York and in Buenos Aires and, and, uh, and vice versa, you know, and that, so this, a desire out of, you know, that really, I think also influenced my desire to do a more transnational or, or translocal or international, however you want to call it history that could also situate these different practices within, um, you know, a broader perspective on, the Americas and the um, political and cultural currents that we can see, you know, across that region. Mm. Well, I want to congratulate you on your choice, both of location and actually of a time frame. Um, the latter for me was particularly interesting to to be able to engage with um, histories of artistic practices that are taking place maybe over the last 20, 30 years, but to be able to situate them in a political movement that stemmed from the 60s and the 70s was actually incredibly interesting. But let's get started. Um, To give our listeners an idea of what it is that we're looking at, you opened the book with um, a case study of the artist Fran Illich, who is doing something incredibly topical for us at the moment. I'm speaking to you from London, where we have been engaged in a debate about restitution of the Benin bronzes, which in part resident at the British Museum. Well, Fran Illich has been engaged in a restitution drive of his own for quite a bit longer. So it would be great to hear about that. Sure. So um, the first chapter of the book is is about this project by, as you mentioned, Fran Illich and the Diego de la Vega cooperative media conglomerate that he, which is one of his um, various collective projects. Um, so Illich, uh, in the under in the guise of Diego de la Vega, issued this petition that he really massively disseminated, calling for the restitution of this. Um, it's called the Penacho de Montezuma, or the uh, ancient feathered Mexican headdress, and it's a um, plumed uh, headdress made of quetzal feathers that was taken. Um, in the conquest of uh, Tenochtitlan, in the when Hernan Cortes conquered the Mexica Empire, which is more popularly known as the Aztec Empire, and was taken, this this object has remained in European collections ever since it was taken in that context and is held in an ethnology museum in Austria. And it's been the object; it has been the subject of controversy for a very long time. So, presidents of Mexico, activists have called for its restitution. 
um, because Mexico just has a facsimile of this object. And so Illich issued this petition that um, calling for this object, which he's recounted the history of it, noting that it was obtained in the conquest of the American Holocaust um, and called for it to be returned. And this petition is issued to the presidents of the Austrian and Mexican republics and and the uh, directors of this museum. Um, But what is so interesting about it is, in fact, this petition was basically a literary device that was used to um, as a kind of portal into this alternate reality game, which is the this sprawling, um, very intricate um, work that's a kind of very highly literary, very heterodox version of an alternate reality game. And for those who, who aren't familiar with alternate reality games, I should say that they are networked games that are played out in both online and offline spaces. But one of the things that distinguishes them is they kind of um, erase the meta language that would identify them as games. So the, creating the impression that they are kind of part of the real world, right? And, and in a way they are, they're integrated into the lives of the players. So this game proceeded in that way. So, you know, people signing the petition didn't necessarily know that it was part of this larger work, but they became, through using this device, Illich enrolls people into the Pinacho Support Network, which is charged with uh, obtaining the feathered crown. And this is a way of developing an interactive narrative that plays out over the course of uh, several months. And it actually becomes this um, work that is about colonial ideologies, about imperialist regimes of debt and property. And Illich, in fact, when I asked him, I said, um, you know, what did you do with this petition? Uh, Did you give it? to the, you know, he said, no, I, I don't believe in petitions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so in fact, it was, and there's a whole part of it where actually in discarding the petition, I should also note one of the other things that's really interesting about this project is Illich exchanged signatures for the petition for um, coffee drinks made with uh, Zapatista coffee, which is part of the solidarity market that supports um, Zapatista farmers. Um, and so there's this, the game also involved a pop-up coffee shop that used funds that were used to commission this artwork in order to support the solidarity market. Um, and in the end, Illich proposes that, in fact, um, he doesn't want to give this headdress back to the Mexican museums. And the work has this really sharp and very smart critique of the kind of uses of indigenous artifacts and signifiers of indigeneity to support a kind of Mexican nationalism that is in fact very hostile to living indigenous people. Well, there's certainly a lot going on there in this practice, and I'd like us to get into some of those details in a moment, but let's stick with um, the knowledge aspect that you just brought up. And Elish seems to be dealing with a notion of indigenous knowledges, He's certainly resonating and responding to colonial knowledges, and he seems to have set up his own own framework for international relations in what he's doing. And despite of these complexities, and I hope you can forgive the bad joke, but I kept on thinking about Fran Illich's namesake, Ian Illich, and his work, The Schooling Society. So I think it will be interesting to spend a moment trying to untangle some of these associations. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that's a great question. And I, um, I appreciate that connection to Ivan Illich. Um, though I should note, Fran Illich is named after Lenin, um, <laughs> in fact. Uh, one of the things I, I, I argue about this work is that it provides what I describe a kind of stereoscopic view, which is a, in stereoscopy is you know, how we see depth because we have differently situated eyes, right? So it combines it through the combination of two different perspectives. And I think that this work does that in a way that offers a very profound critique of colonial imperialist ideologies by showing, bringing together uh, examples of those alongside what an anti-colonial view of these phenomena might be, like juxtaposing um, the ideas of property that, you know, that this museum owns this object and that, um, you know, all what can be done would be just, you know, uh, 
asking for its return, juxtaposes that, for example, to the idea that, in fact, uh, the right those who to whom this object rightfully pertains could charge. Uh, interest for the commercial use of this object by this Austrian museum over the course of hundreds of years. So that's a kind of, you know, anti-imperialist accounting of uh, wealth and also even thinking about the kind of rents that are made off of looted wealth, you know, from colonized people. And there's a lot of examples throughout the work that does this. Um, and and also, I think I find this a really um, rich example for thinking about ideology more generally and about colonial ideologies more specifically, because it, this work also addresses, you know, even the ways that we think of the global economy, certain moral economies, the way that um, our morality is shaped, ideas of kind of, um, you know, humanitarian concern are shaped. And it really shows the kind of systemic erasures and perversions that colonialism produces in in these phenomena. Um, part of that there is has to do with like the memorialization or historicization of the American Holocaust, the genocide of indigenous people in the Americas, which the work juxtaposes to um, kind of uh, memorializations of the Nazi Holocaust. Um, and one of the things, you know, I argue is that in um, juxtaposing a kind of anti-colonial view of these phenomena to the way that they're generally conceived in bourgeois colonial ideologies, the work shows us that these really are competing worldviews and that they're very comprehensive, but that they're not inverse, inversions of each other and that anti-colonial, an anti-colonial critique is not simply just a, not just a critique or a correction, but it in fact um, is a competing world of sense making that in fact provides a more comprehensive view of the world because it takes into account the totality of, for example, the global economy, the types of knowledge production like you were talking about that is continually blocked by these colonial projects. The, the work also takes, you know, contemporary anti-colonial praxis as a real, um, explicit inspiration and kind of orientation. In in this case, it's the Zapatistas as a kind of privileged example of contemporary anti-colonial practice and really um, centers the knowledge production from that movement as a way of thinking about what a kind of, um, you know, anti-colonial, anti-capitalist politics is in the contemporary moment, but how that also translates into knowledge and ideas that you know, are pertinent to metropolitan art viewers in Austria as well, right? So there's also this idea of socializing this this knowledge and this worldview and the idea that it, that it could somehow just be included in the way that things otherwise are, but that in fact what it's calling for is a total restructuring um, of the way we think as well as the way we think about and, and treat things like, you know, property accumulation, um, well, and that incompatibility, I think, remains. And for me, it was one of the things that was attractive in Elitch's work, in which I read a bit of a mistrust for the decolonizing project. And I mean this, the decolonizing project in the context of a Western art institution or the academy. Um, and Elitch lauded these kind of things himself. Um, you know, he tries to set up, as you describe, an Aztec chapel in Vienna. He tries to perform international politics through um, the medium of the museum gift shop. And of course, these things don't really go anywhere. And while failure is, of course, not a stranger to artistic practice, either as a reality or as a performance, I wonder how you read these gestures in the context of what is, after all, quite a significant set of conflicts. Yeah, I think that's a really, that's a great question. Um, I think part of what this work is critiquing and what I really appreciate in it is it is um, critiquing the idea that somehow that gestures that would be meaningful but still largely symbolic, you know, if this uh, object were returned, that that would somehow constitute a truly robust decolonial project when you're, you know, that is juxtaposed to the great reality of, in this case, the Mexican state's real hostility to the actual demands of, you know, um, anti-colonial demands of indigenous peoples. And I, I, there's also this aspect of the work that 
kind of anticipates the way that his presence as a you know, Mexican artist doing this work that has a connection to Zapatismo could be this kind of fetish of cultural difference for within the context of the European institution. And he kind of says as, as much that he wanted to um, and, and designed the work to um, not not proffer some kind of like authentic indigenous content that would be, you know, uh, provide the kind of multicultural symbolic capital for this uh, institution in the way that sometimes that's that's how things are, are, are framed in these contexts. And so he, the work ends up, you know, really juxtaposing in a way the kind of um, a cultural politics that would be largely symbolic and that would also be based on a kind of entreaty to these powerful colonial institutions, juxtaposes that to um, a more solidarity work with you know, a rebel army in southern Mexico that has an explicitly anti-colonial, anti-capitalist project. Um, and I think that for me, I, I'm, I'm actually working on a, an article now with my friend and colleague, Anya Lumba, about post-colonialism and post-colonial and decolonial thought. And it's, um, I think that some of the, the concerns you raise are really in, important ones. And for me, what I, I think is sometimes disturbing about the way that the uptake of or the framing of decolonization or decolonial thought in you know arts and academic spaces is that on one hand there's a way of divorcing questions of culture and epistemology and ideology from the material relations in which those are grounded and in which the kind of differences or antagonisms in thought are grounded. And, and this has part, you know, this is partly what I think is really useful about uh, the Marxist framework that I draw on to talk about ideology is that if you, if you think about, you know, knowledge practices and culture is grounded in material practices, those kind of antagonisms or differences that are at the level of, of thought and knowledge that are indexed or that are, you know, analyzed in decolonial thought are grounded in you know, um, material relations of the greatest urgency. And I think there's sometimes a way of um, thinking that we could rectify those if we just thought differently, like the, what's at the, you know what I mean? Like there's a, like it's these bad Western thinking or there's these, sometimes these issues are addressed at such levels of abstraction of thinking of like the problems with Western modernity or Western epistemologies that don't really do much to help us actually identify the actual agents that are involved in the actual conflicts where there's so much at stake. I've taken a lot, I've learned really a lot from, um, particularly Latin American thinkers. Hector Diaz Polanco is a Mexican anthropologist, and he's, at least as far as I don't, doesn't write specifically on decoloniality, but has a really, I think, applicable and brilliant critique of a certain kind of populist treatment of questions of indigeneity, that, that there's a kind of tendency to want to like preserve the culture, indigenous culture and life ways and um, defend these. But if we don't recognize the real threat that capital and capitalism poses to these things, then our defenses are going to be very ineffective. And so he really argues for situating that desire to defend these practices and knowledge within the necessity of an anti-capitalist struggle. And, and that's something I, I believe in profoundly and also I think is, is reflected in, um, in the work I'm writing about and that it, it, it does want to direct our attention to these very material questions and to the fact that these contemporary anti-colonial struggles um, that we can learn an enormous amount from well, maybe this is a good moment to shift our attention to Argentina and the two artistic collectives that you write about are called Etc. and Grupo de Arte Callejero, whose work really contrasts with Fran Illich's to the extent that it is deeply connected with the socio-economic struggles of the country. So it would be great to consider these as examples of not only an ideological and conceptual engagement with the socio-political matter, um, around them, but actually as examples of really deep practical engagement with the issues. To do that, however, I think we need to first consider the um, recent economic and political history of Argentina. 
Yeah. So the the final two chapters of the book are based on research I did in Buenos Aires over the course of many years and um, focus on art groups that are active starting in the late 90s up until the present and um, who get their, who have a very formative experience using their art as a form of political militancy within the human rights movement in Argentina. But there's also, um, the book also really tracks the influence of the economic depression, the financial crisis that occurred there. The depression really begins in the late 90s. There's an enormous financial crisis um, that peaks in 2001, and there's a popular uprising um, that where the people you know, overthrow the president and his entire cabinet and a real flourishing of these autonomous uh, popular movements in this context. So part, on one hand, the book, that those chapters are looking at how this context of these um, uh, auton- largely autonomous urban social movements and the uprising of 2001 influence artistic practice, um, as well as tracking this, the, the, the participation of, of these groups in the human rights movement. But to give a little, a, and these things actually intersect in a way when we understand the larger history of Argentina. So in the, the financial crisis and the depression come, are the res, that happened in the late 90s and early 2000s are the result of um, neoliberal economic reforms that are really radicalized in the 90s. <clears throat> but the process of neoliberalization in Argentina begins in the 1970s. There, like in other countries in the Southern Cone, neoliberalization um, is imposed by right-wing authoritarian dictatorships. Um, we people often, you know, know or well, I don't know if people often know this, but this is the case in Chile, famously a kind of laboratory of neoliberalism under Pinochet. But there's also kind of homegrown versions of neoliberal economic policy that are imposed in Uruguay, um, Argentina, as well around this time. So the crisis of um, 2001 is also part of this larger history of um, these counter economic counter reforms and is um, part also of the, the larger history of understanding neoliberalization as, you know, particularly savage form of capitalism as in a kind of count, both a counter revolutionary force and a um, as part of a counter revolutionary project that ruling classes carry out, um, you know, around the world. In the hand in hand with the globalization of production in from the seventies onward, um, and this ties into understanding the history of the human rights movement because, as I mentioned, you know these economic these anti worker pro capital economic policies are imposed by um, these right this right wing regime in the case in Argent, the case of Argentina this regime is known as the national reorganization process which uses state in terrorism and political genocide to um, succeed in imposing these these kind of policies that otherwise would have you know been faced with enormous resistance from the uh, what was a very powerful labor movement from a from the organized left and the armed left at this time and so it's this use of state terrorism and the disappearance of approximately forced disappearance of approximately 30,000 people that is the means to accomplish the ends of the you know the reorg the um basically um, um kind of imposing a labor dis- discipline and increasing the rate of of uh, the extraction of profit so the human rights movement emerges in the 70s as a reaction to this, and it becomes the, you know, initially by people and um, who are demanding the return of their disappeared loved ones, and then later demanding justice for the perpetrators of state terrorism. And in the, but after the return to um, constitutionalism and parliamentary democracy, um, in 1983, there's uh, by the big early 90s, there's these um, amnesties that are passed. So there can't be uh, it, that ends the possibility of um, seeking formal justice for perpetrators of state terrorism. And the human rights movement 
um, in as a reaction to this develops a form of a kind of form of popular justice as um, that seeks to build a social condemnation of people who are involved in state terrorism. And this takes the form of there's a, the tactic that's known there as a scratches that involves um, publicly denouncing these people. And it's also really, it's important to understand that these are people who have, you know, have legal protections at this time to not be prosecuted. This larger history helps us to understand how, you know, the, the human rights movement and the reaction to state violence. Also, it's, I think, very important to see it within the larger project, the larger political project of a, you know, counter-revolution. You know, this is also the the way of decimating the armed left and attempting to kind of rid the country of um, communist and socialist ideologies, this use of state terrorism. And I think as well, the economic depression and financial crisis that emerges from decades of neoliberalization that is also the you know legacy of of this history. So, but the artists that I write about, they are like of the generation of the children of the disappeared, and many of them have you know actual family connections to this history, loved ones who were disappeared, loved ones, parents, um, you know, etc., who were militants, communist militants, etc. Um, but they really are active in the con- in the nineties where you have, you know, formal democracy or what um, I write about following William I. Robinson's work is polyarchy because it's not, I think, a way of understanding like a form of elite rule that has elections. Um, And they are involved in the human rights movement and particularly in using this performance-based work or urban interventions as part of these public denunciation protests um, that are called the scratches. And part of what I'm interested in, though, is that the the way that they intervene or, or, or participate and contribute to this tactic of public denunciation, in doing that, they're also putting forth very particular narratives about or and ways of um, framing the history that pertains to you know this history of state terrorism, and that they do this in ways that are refusing this kind of periodization, which is like at this, in many ways, a kind of core of so much of the kind of official histories of, of the dictatorship. There's a periodization that would say, you know, state violence is a problem of this dictatorship that is now passed. And now we have this uh, return to the um, parliamentary democracy. And so that that is if this were a kind of post-violence present, and my interest in this work is that it really refuses that kind of um, partitioning because it uses the uh, language and tactics and symbolism that and that have been developed by the human rights movement largely to address state violence of the period of the dictatorship uses that to focus attention on state violence in uh, of the liberal state in the contemporary moment in the post-dictatorship presence present as well as to focus attention on other forms of violence that are endemic to capitalist social relations like the violence of um exploitation or the destruction of the biosphere you know as a condition of accumulation the the scratches that you mentioned i think to to me were a bit of a kind of cold shower to even understand i mean for 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 listeners who who might still be struggling we're essentially talking about high level in the street doxing and there's so many things that don't really make sense to me i mean the, the amnesty you referred to is an amnesty for politicians the perpetrators of violence not amnesty for political prisoners and another thing that's, that's, that's twisted here a little bit, and I think it will be interesting to explore, is that on my understanding of the coming together of art practices and the human rights movements in a European or Northern American context does indeed take place in the 1980s and the 1990s, but it's a very, very different set of circumstances. Art is a communicator of human rights discourse for causes that are far away from it. So, you know, when, when we have Amnesty International or Oxfam displaying an interest in communicating its messaging through art, that's very, very different to what we're describing here. So GAC, the, the street art group, participate in the scratches really hands-on, and you talk about body of work called Street Signs, where they 
they're literally doing kind of well. I would have exp- I would have described it as agitprop, but you you don't. You you think they they reject that label. So maybe you could talk a little bit about where the line between activism and art really comes about. So yeah, and Yak's work is a great example of. Um, these street signs that function and these denunciation protests that are known as escraches that have a practical function of identifying the homes of perpetrators of state terrorism, providing their addresses, functioning in the actual material organization of protests um, to help lead people to these to these to these homes. Um, I think that the the work is both art and it's activist. Um, and That's I think perfectly it's, acceptable. I, so, <laughs> it's a good, good enough answer, both, I'm sure. But. You know, it, it, um, and one of the things that I, I talk about, and I'm drawing on Stephen Wright's work in, in doing so, is that there, the work isn't is often not made visible, socially visible as art. Like there's no marks of authorship on it. In the case of um, Gap or Grupo de Arte Callejero, they don't. They they have their work circulate um, freely. They don't put their name on it or make it look like an artwork. Um, for uh, at least what one of the members, um, Lorena Bassi, had mentioned is this idea that that would also by not doing that it encourages other people to think that they could also do this kind of intervention. That it's not some kind of you know uh, removed or precious kind of thing that with the you know the ideas we often associate with art. Um, so there's a kind of contingent recognition of these objects as being art or as being not art. And again, another thing I note in, in that chapter, I think, where um, one of the members of Etc., who do um, these very body, sometimes very funny, very often very dark performances in the Escraches, where they were doing this in the late 90s, they noted when they had a retrospective that a lot of the documentation of their work publicly circulated in not in the art section of the newspaper, right, but in the politics section. And you can see that when you look at their archive. Oh, but that, that's that's presumably the, the, the most the most accolade you could hope for yeah. in this kind of work. No, that, that's yeah, that's bingo. And there's a, yeah. So I think it's like recognizing that this work has these complex social lives, and in some contexts, it's some contexts it's read and valorized as activism in other contexts it circulates as art or the documentation of it circulates its art as art which has you know all these implications for then how it's used it can be historicized differently in that way but i think it's um, we can say that it is not just one practice kind of practice or another especially if we kind of take seriously the um variegated circulation and reception of this work then we can understand that it exists as multiple things, I think. Well, I guess this perspective connects to the broader thesis of the book, which is that, the way I read it, that aesthetics is a tool with which one can read both art and its political situation at the same time. I approach aesthetics in a way, um, you know, that departs completely from the idea of that art has some kind of autonomy, that it is... uh, somehow separate from the social world or that aesthetics is a kind of realm of experience or judgment that is separate from the rest of social life. That also implies, you know, rejecting the idea that when we talk about aesthetics or we're analyzing aesthetic qualities that we need to use as our model or as our object of analysis only those practices that have been socially identified as fine art or as literature. And we know like, the history of those, those that's also a historical and contingent process, the way that certain things have been recognized as art or as not. Or, and it's also a process that's very bound up with, um, you know, the creation and preservation of hierarchies of cultural value, right? Um, so departing from that, I instead really approach aesthetics as a... Um, an essential component of ideology and as a framework for thinking about ideology as a kind of aesthetic and compositional process that so that when we think of ideology as, you know, in short, the kind of, you know, imaginary relationship between our real conditions of existence and, you know, our consciousness of them, um, that that implies all of these things that are relevant to when we think about aesthetics as having to do with sense and perception. Um, and this is something I've kind of I've written of I've written about in greater detail in another um, 
article called um, Towards a Compositional Model of Ideology. But it's understanding that basically, um, you know, thinking of the way that ideology actively shapes um, not just representations and ideas, but really are a kind of uh, perceptual and sensuous relationship to the world. And um, thinking of it that way and thinking of um, the, all of these aesthetic dimensions of ideology, I then kind of bring that to bear to, to looking at how specific art practices are engaging in ideological struggles that are in fact ranged across the social landscape. So, you know, for example, thinking of Illich's intervention um, and the whole, that alternate reality game and the petitions and all of those things, which are aesthetic uh, works that are in very much engaged in ideological struggles around colonial ideologies, around nationalism, but also the practices that the, that he is critiquing and reacting against are also bringing in that kind of uh, attention to thinking of the aesthetic dimensions of ideology also helps us to, for example, understand the ways that colonial worldviews are uh, disseminated by the display, the exhibition practices of ethnology museums, for example, or the ways that um, nationalist ideologies are constructed and disseminated through all of these uses of indigenous uh, signifiers in the case of Mexico. So having a, bringing this kind of, uh, you know, it, in, in a, a way, it's bringing this form of a very robust form of ideology critique that to particular works, but situating those within these broader ideological struggles that I argue have all of these aesthetic dimensions to them. Um, and because this also using this, um, thinking of aesthetics in this way, I felt was also necessary precisely because of the fact that the practices that I'm writing about don't just circulate in the world as art, as, as we were talking about. They also are, have been, you know, understood as activism, as vandalism, as a business practice in the case of some of Illich's work, as a petition, you know. So I, it, I um, needed also to develop a kind of, uh, or, or utilize a more robust and expansive way of thinking about aesthetics that could also, uh, you know, account for the real social life of these practices. Hmm. Well, I wanted to ask you about one more detail in this relationship between art and other forms of activity. Um, I recall that you cite um, etc. as speaking about the artistic autonomy coming under pressure from the political demands of the practice. So there's to me a certain type of imbalance in which even though we can speak about these practices being equivalent and, and the aesthetic is kind of a totalizing um, principle, the tensions are still, of course, in place. I'm glad you brought that up. It's a really interesting example where they had a kind of, it said that a, a certain conflict with IJOS, which is a human rights organization that they were collaborating with about a performance that, um, uh, about their their role in their creating these performances within the escraches that Ijos is you know primarily responsible for organizing along with the Mesa de Escrache Popular, and um, I think that this when I think about the, their argument for autonomy, um, meaning that they wanted to have space to make their own kinds of decisions about what their, how would they, their art would look like, but also the kind of political positions they would take. And this, um, and they wanted in a kind of autonomy from this political organization that they're not, you know, and to me, that is um, a kind of different question than thinking that art has a kind of autonomy of its own. I see it more as an example of a group of artists not wanting to, um, having a kind of uh, difference from a political organization and that that's more about a kind of ideological struggles within a particular movement that I think, um, and are really important ones. And I talk about those struggles in greater detail precisely because, you know, the, the human rights movement is very heterogeneous and, um, there's some of these artists make a very important critique of some of the positions that movement takes. And I think it'll make a very important critique of like the liberal human rights framework more broadly. So in that sense, that kind of it's, I, I see that as a matter of um, 
an autonomy from a particular political organization that is can be viewed within that framework, which is which is not the same thing that of saying that art is autonomous from the social. If that makes sense. Mm, certainly, but then what becomes, I think, really important is precisely the way in which those artistic practices do relate to the social. If um, a set of relationships between art practices and the art world, the classic aesthetic considerations of artistic practices are parked to one side. And if also we have this kind of political separation that we just touched on. So I think it becomes really important to disentangle which forms of connection the artistic practices seek. The, the, the fact that the, the work, a lot of these works are only contingently and in some cases understood to be art and in other cases understood to be something else has to do also with what I describe as their paradisciplinarity. So this, I, the fact that they extend and into and um, incorporate practices, techniques, forms from um from other kinds of practices that are not typically associated with the fine arts or literature, like um, game, alternate reality gaming, petitioning, uh, cartography, direct action protest, solidarity economies, etc. And um, I talk about this as part of the experimentalism of these works, and I argue that you know talk about all of the works that I write about as. Um, as being experimental, um, one of the works is also a kind of practice of public guerrilla public history, um, and I wanted to emphasize the experimentalism of this explicitly political leftist art, um, in part because there's often this idea that like leftist art is just didactic, or it's somehow that political commitment is ex- opposed to formal experimentation. Um, which I, I think is a very wrong-headed idea, but one that you know circulates a lot. Um, while in fact, you know, I think there's a necessity for experimentalism in art that wants to have an, you know, speak to a change, a changing social re- reality, which is incredibly dynamic, and that wants to affect people who are also changing and, and changed by that reality. So, and this is something where I really draw a lot on uh, Brecht's work and his. Um, argument for artists to look to draw on whatever means they can to produce the kind of political effects and ideological effects that they're seeking to produce which he you know he is arguing should should be effects that unmask bourgeois ideology and show you also how the the actual motive forces for um historical development um and but he says you know we should draw on you know, the arts, an artist could draw on the arts of surgery, of public speaking, of flying. There's, he completely rejects the idea that practices should be siloed. So, so I could draw on this to show how these artists are also, you know, um, incorporating all of these other kinds of techniques and forms into their practice in ways that helps it to have the kind of effects in the world that they're seeking. And I also differentiate this from the kind of fetish for experimentalism or for novelty that we see in the, you know, in the art world where it's just like newness for the sake of newness, which I think has much more to do with the kind of market logics of, um, you know, the theory industry and art industries. Um, because in this case, there's a kind of experimentalism for the practices that I'm talking about that is also tied to the work's connection to actual movements um, and to it, its investment in uh, actual, you know, in, in political struggles. Um, and finally, I just wanted to note that I think this aspect of experimentalism that we that I see in this work, but that I also think is true for a lot of um, uh, leftist art is takes place at the level of intervening in the way that the work is produced and that it's circulated and the kind of audience that it finds because much of this work is extra institutional. Um, it circulates outside of the kind of um, you know circuits of uh, literary publishing or typical forms of, of ex- ex- fine art exhibition. Um, but there's also ways that there's um, the artists are thinking are, are transforming the ways that art is typically produced and circulated. And that might be, or that in the case, for example, of the second chapter, there 
also transforming the ways that public history is typically produced and circulated. And so I'm also very interested in the way that uh, we can think about, um, you know, efforts to transform the relations of production and circulation as a really important site of experimentation that can have enormous effects um, in terms of who the work reaches, um, the kind of autonomy of the of the artist practice, the not having to work, you know, work within an apparatus that is owned by your political enemies, for example. Mm, well, you close the book with what I think is a perfect example of this kind of manipulation of the right of initiative. Um, and I'm referring to, to the practice of the errorist group um, who are an incarnation of the etc. group that we spoke about before. And what strikes me as happening there is this kind of theatricality in which all means, all initiatives are part of a kind of fiction which somehow allows for the situation to be reimagined live as it happens. Yeah. So this, yeah, so this is, um, etc. creates the international... Um, international Errorista or International Errorist in 2005 as a kind of, you could imagine them as like a surrealist send-up of a terrorist cell um, or a surreal, of a armed guerrilla um, where they, and they have this very anti-naturalistic um, garb that they wear in public that includes these large um, facsimiles of weapons, but that looked like they were kind of plucked from a comic book page and with big red banner pennants, you know, that read bang and boom from the end. So they were very anti-naturalistic and they create this um, group in um, an issue, the manifesto of it publicly, um, I think on Indie Media Argentina. And in, in part, this is a reaction to and a critique of the proliferation of anti-terrorism uh, laws uh, around Latin America in the wake of 2001, where you have, you know, the U.S. and the OAS and international financial institutions um, pressure Latin American governments to adopt anti-terrorism laws um, in the context of, like, you know, the U.S. also initiating uh, homeland security and the so-called war on terror. And so, and and I and I should say those those laws I think have to be understood as a means of increasing state power and particularly poli- the state's policing power and remodeling expectations around political and civil rights, um, and also I think of regulating perceptions of you know violence that is considered barbaric and violence that is considered you know normal and acceptable. So they create the, this, um, this semi, you know, fictionalized group movement and produce media interventions and, um, also appear in public spaces, including in protests against the, a visit by George Bush to Argentina, George W. Bush, um, and protests against the, uh, attempted passage of the ALCA, or the free trade area of the Americas, which would be like an expanded NAFTA. So they participate in these anti, like anti-globalization protests. We could call them, you know, anti-neoliberal free trade agreement protests. And but their appearance in public spaces in this, it, it, with their kefias and the, these large fake uh, weapons they carry, provoke these. Um, reactions and these kind of spontaneous, what I describe as these spontaneous social performances that the artists also um, record and reframe in ways um, that, and produce videos of them where you have, in the case, one of the, one of the examples I write about, you have, they're doing um, what they describe as a, a kind of a film shoot, which is interrupted when somebody calls the cops on them and then the cops come and their dogs and sirens and everything. And, uh, you know, and they have them drop their, you know, so-called weapons, which are obviously fake, but the, on all of this is recorded and then um, made into this video. Well, and one thing I should note is that 
people called the cops on them because they were thought they were members of the unemployed workers movement in Argentina, which is a working class social movement that was really um, criminalized by the state and the corporate media um, at the time. So what you really see unfold in this spontaneous social performance is the is the security politics that has been actively promoted, where even though it's by error that the cops are called on these artists and they, you know, who produce their forged filming permit um, and are, you know, allowed to continue what you, the, their framing of the, the, what unfolds actually shows us to see that, yes, this might've been an error, but the fact that people would be called the cops if they think that they're seeing this person, who, which has a figure that has been constructed for them as a criminalized figure of the, you know, of the so-called dangerous classes um, and that the cop reacts accordingly and has this whole story about the danger of the anti-globalization protesters. So you really see that this has been a scripted performance, even though it's a spontaneous performance, but the security politics is what really scripted this from the reactions of the cops to the reactions of the neighbors, et cetera. And I think that it's it that as work is really brilliant in doing this. They've done other works where, um, for example, I don't write about in the book, but it was, it was more recent where they, the media corporate media coverage of one of their actions in a performance where they had this enormous helicopter made of cardboard. The, the, the re media reaction was hysterical and talked about them being, um, Coolmongers. The fact that you have this at the core, that what they're they're reacting to is this absurd kind of um, silly provocation. It, it works that, that functions very well as this kind of provocation, as well as you know their brilliance of the way that they frame the reactions to it. It allows us to kind of see the uh, construction of these discourses, of these fear-inducing discourses, the construction of ideas of, you know, in the latter case, the kind of uh, socialist enemy to be feared, etc., or the, you know, working-class militant to be feared, so that there, the, you see this kind of um, producing of the social script that unfolds in relationship to these artistic uh, performances, but also it's important that in the way that they're that they're not always perceived as artistic performances by everyone, in order to provoke that kind of reaction, that they then make the object of scrutiny. Well, thank you, Jennifer. I really appreciate you sharing all this work and research with us. Before I let you go, I wonder if you could maybe tell our listeners what it is that you're working on next. Thank you. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm kind of. I got three projects working on. Um, I had mentioned the, um, the article I'm working on with Anya Lumba on postcolonial and decolonial theory. Um, I'm also working on a book with Gabriel Rockhill um, called that we're writing that book for Columbia University Press, um, and that's called Revolutionizing Aesthetics: Composing a World Beyond Art, and it. Um, it offers a kind of a Marxist theoretical framework for both for thinking about ideology as an aesthetic phenomenon. And as I talked about a bit, it extends, it expands on that. Um, and for provincializing, you know, bourgeois conceptions of art when we think about aesthetics. Um, and then the book also um, analyzes the social relations of cultural production as it overdetermines artistic creations. So how we, you know, really can think about the, the relations of production, the political economy um, involved in the production, exhibition, circulation of the arts, while also really showing um, or, or discussing artists who have targeted these social relations of production as their object of intervention and transformation, ranging from Brecht to Teatro Campesino to Theatre de Prest or Cine de Liberación. So it's an international um, history that focuses largely on the Americas and, and Europe. Um, and that um, and then I'm also starting another monograph um, that's provisionally entitled Inter Envisioning Internationalism. And it's somewhat similar to the first book in that it's looking at um, contemporary art, cultural productions, including theater, literature, and experimental visual arts um, from Latin America and the Latinx US. But it... Um, 
is looking more closely at the ways that artists and writers are articulating a vision of proletarian internationalism as a kind of necessary politics for the 21st century. So whereas um, another aesthetics is possible, I'm doing, um, I provide a kind of historical contextualization to show the connections that there are these, we should view these more localized uh, movements within a, you know, a international fabric of class struggle. The new book I'm working on is is more focused on um, projects that really put the question of internationalism at the center of of their political and our, um, of of, the, of their kind of cultural politics and the type of you know visions that they're they're offering us. Well, fantastic! I hope you'll come back to speak to us about both these projects when they're out. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. My thanks go to Jennifer Ponce de Leon, whose book Another Aesthetics is Possible, Arts of the Rebellion in the Fourth World War, is published by Duke University Press. I'm Pierre Dalance, and the editor is Marshall Poe. Thank you for listening, and join us next time. <laughs>